Welcome to another episode of Scholars by the Sea, a podcast dedicated to exploring some of the most interesting scholarship and books in the discipline of history. Our aim is to illuminate some of the great works being done by historians of the United States Naval Academy and beyond, and to share with you ideas that are driving new interpretations of the past. For today's episode, we have with us in the studio two Naval Academy history professors, Dr. Lori Bogle, an Americanist, will be interviewing Dr. Tom McCarthy on his recent book, Developing the Whole Person, A Practitioner's Tale of Counseling College and the American Promise. Dr. McCarthy's book is both a professional biography of the author's father, also it's a history of how applied psychology came to higher education in general, and to LaSalle College, a Catholic college in Philadelphia in particular. Thank you, Tom, for agreeing to this interview. Great to be with you. I think we will start with the first line of your introduction, it seems appropriate, and that sentence is, few of us think of our parents in historical terms, even when we are historians. Would you tell us how you decided to focus a monograph on your father? Let me start by sketching a little bit uh, how I became aware that there were connections between my father's life and larger history. Uh, as a boy, I was very interested in history, and of course, at an early age, was starting to read biographies and histories and learn the basic outlines of American history. My dad never was somebody who talked a lot about himself or his background. Uh, but he talked enough, especially about his boyhood in the Depression and his service in the Navy during World War II, and then being the first in his college in his family to go to college on the GI Bill after the war. Uh, that pretty early on, I realized that there were some connections to the larger history that I was becoming more familiar with. Um, sometime around third or fourth grade, I must have had an uh, elementary school teacher uh, who pushed current events. And uh, in any case, during that year, I started to pay attention to what was going on in the United States. This was the fall of 1967. And I now know as a U.S. historian that that was a pretty good time to begin paying attention to what was happening in the country. Uh, so I was aware uh, of things like the Vietnam War happening, I was fully aware of the events that took place the following year in 1968. Uh, began listening to the television news to, to follow current events. Uh, lots of big things happened in 1968. Uh, I began reading Time magazine and having an even greater appreciation for current events. Uh, and in that context, listening to some of my father's stories about being a university administrator at LaSalle in the late 60s and 70s, I realized he was talking about things that I was reading about in Time magazine and and, and uh, following on the television news. So I realized, well, there's a few more connections to things that are going on. But it really wasn't until I came to the Naval Academy in the early 2000s and began teaching the U.S. history since 1945 course and having to wrap my my head for our students uh, around everything that happened in the United States in the second half of the 20th century that I was forcibly reminded again that, that my own father had lots of connections 
to U.S. history in the second half of the 20th century. And I began wondering, is that typical of most people uh, who lived in, uh, in the United States in this period, or were there a slightly larger number of connections? I wasn't under any illusion that my father was a significant person in terms of history, but this this idea that his life, for maybe coincidental reasons, had intersected with a lot of important things that had happened in the United States got me thinking more actively about, well, you know, I wonder if I kind of wrote up more formally his life and explored this a little bit more, I wonder where this might go. You do a great job of placing your father's life in context of the uh, Great Depression and World War II. Uh, what factors from the 1930s and World War II played a role in his psychological development? My father's childhood was was demanding because of um, his father's health broke down uh, during the Great Depression. Uh, he had a heart condition. And when he lost his job and was forced to rely on uh, manual labor to bring income into the family, uh, that further degraded his health. And ultimately, his father died when he was 10 years old. So that left the family um, uh, without a breadwinner in the middle of the Depression and left him without a father. Uh, And so those two events... um, finding himself in poverty and and fatherless were two very defining features of his boyhood. Uh, At the time, he experienced both of those things as as being really, really unfortunate. He hated both of them, and he was acutely conscious of both. He and his family were growing up in a small town in Massachusetts. Uh, In the 1930s, uh, relief was still managed at the town level in Massachusetts, so there was nothing anonymous about applying for relief. Uh, You had to go to your neighbors who ran the relief effort in the town, a town of only a few thousand people. So everybody in town knew everybody who was on relief. So he was very conscious of being one of those families in the town that was being supported by the other people in the town and and being on relief. And he hated that. And in that sense, that experience was a socially stigmatizing, searing experience that he never forgot. Um, So that was a very defining experience for him. At the same time, he was, uh, he was an outgoing person. Uh, he was an energetic person. Uh, and, and so he realized that soon after his father died that because the family was on relief, in fact, on the program that later we called welfare, which was essentially a widow's pension, was the basic idea there, he knew that he had to start going out and finding ways to make money in the community. So newspaper routes, selling magazines to neighbors, and, and, and things like that. So the experience of poverty made him a ferociously hard worker at a very, very early age. And for me, although I kind of knew the, the details of that, being able to explore that a little bit with him, it made very clear that Poverty is not just a searing, it's a scarring experience 
for people who have to go through it. Uh, and I could see ways that that, that affected him the rest of his life. And in that sense, the experience was disfiguring for the rest of his life because he could never relax. He could never have hobbies. He always had to be doing something productive that involved hard work. And that's just that fundamental insecurity that he experienced in his depression boyhood. You write that your father joined the military pretty late in the war, right after he graduated. Is that correct? Yes, that's that's true. So so he was born in 1927. Uh, so at the time of Pearl Harbor, he was only 14 and uh, in his first fall uh, of of high school. Uh, so service really didn't loom initially as, as something that he had to think about. But by the time he got to his senior year, 1944-45, the war was still going on. And even though it looked like it might be wrapping up in Europe pretty soon, it, it, it appeared that the war in the Pacific would last uh, a while longer until our forces reached the home islands of Japan. So in his senior year, he, he really had to do some, some hard thinking about what he wanted to do. What he really wanted to do was get admitted to the U.S. Naval Academy and, in fact, come here as a student. And so he went through the whole application process and got vetted successfully for that. Ultimately, he ended up being the first alternate for his congressional district. So close, but but no appointment to the Naval Academy. Uh, when that became clear in the late winter of 1945, he and two of his football uh, teammates decided, well, why don't we just go ahead and, and enlist in the Navy? And so they went down to the recruiting office in Boston and, uh, and signed enlistment papers. Apparently, the recruiter told them, oh, we won't ask you to report until after your graduation in June, right, which, which turned out to be a BS line because they were called to report right away. And, and my grandmother blew a gasket when she heard about that and had to uh, play a couple of uh, – political connections to find somebody to intervene with the Navy to, to get those orders changed. Long story short, they had a report a couple of days after their graduation in June 1945. So he went right off to boot camp uh, end of June 1945 and spent the summer of 1945 training to be a sailor at Lake Sampson, New York in the, in the Finger Lakes. Uh, and just as he was finishing up boot camp, the atomic bombs were dropped on Japan, and the war wrapped up really quickly. Um, but what happened to him was he was rushed immediately to the other side of the Pacific Ocean so that he and others like him could begin replacing the sailors who had been in the service for two, three, four years so they could get out and get home as quickly as possible. So for him, it was kind of a whirlwind experience. Literally, he had never been out of New England in his entire life up to the age of 18 until he went into the Navy. And then within a few weeks after boot camp, he was on the other side of the world on a destroyer in Japan uh, serving in the, in the U.S. Navy. a number of fortunate events that happen in his life that lead him to his professional career. And his service in World War II gave him enough time in uniform so that he could qualify for the GI Bill. Absolutely. So he got his BA at Catholic University? 
That's right. He got a BA in psychology, uh, and Catholic University had only started an undergraduate major in psychology in 1940, and then, of course, the war hit. So essentially, they had had, I don't know, maybe two or three undergraduate students who had actually graduated up to that point with, uh, with a major in psychology. So it turned out the cohort of students who started in the fall of 1946 essentially were the first undergraduate psychology majors that they had at Catholic University. Um, and being a psychology major turned out to be uh, a fortunate thing uh, in terms of being able to get support beyond his GI Bill benefits. Uh, at the end of his sophomore year, when he was out of his GI Bill benefits, he had a conversation with the chair of the psychology department at Catholic and said, told him, I'm not sure I can come back next year. I, I, I don't have any more GI Bill's support. And, and the chair said to him, hey, well, okay, let me see what I can do about that, and came back and told him, I, I've gotten you a tuition scholarship for your last two years, so don't worry about it, right? Uh, and I'll also give you a job working for the department. It won't be as much as you got paid as your stipend for the GI Bill, but, you know, it's something and you won't have to worry about tuition. And my dad was, whoa, wow, thank you. I really kind of appreciate that. My dad thought about that over the years, and he kind of thinks that maybe that department chair, who was a Catholic priest, might have actually had paid his tuition for him and just didn't say anything about it, right? But that's what my dad kind of suspected there because he never got any kind of official notification from the university. We have awarded you this this kind of fellowship or scholarship or any kind of official letter. He, he thinks that's just what happened there. But then when he finished his undergraduate degree, this same department chair was interested in standing up a master's program in counseling psychology. He actually had gotten funding from the Veterans Administration because the Veterans Administration needed more qualified counselors to staff these VA counseling centers, which were still in operation in 1950, to provide the counseling benefit under the GI Bill to the veterans and things like that. So they were willing to fund programs to train counselors. Catholic University was interested in training Roman Catholic counselors in psychology so that they could go off to other Catholic colleges and universities and be college counselors there. So this same department chair offered my dad a fellowship to, to do a master's in counseling. So he did another two years and completed his master's degree at Catholic. Well, we're finally getting to the title of your book. So it's titled Developing the Whole Person, which is a uh, principle that developed uh, even before World War II on uh, how to work with college students. Mm -hmm. So could you define that for us, the developing the whole person? And there's another name for it, the student personnel point of view development? That's right. That's right. So the story goes back to World War One, and the psychologists who worked with the U.S. Army to help the Army sort into basically job classification categories, the four million men that we inducted during the war. The war happened at the moment when a handful of psychologists were saying, hey, it's time to leave our experimental labs and begin to think about 
what we have learned as psychologists over the previous generation that we could share out in the real world. So there was a psychologist, Walter Dill Scott, who had started to work with advertising agencies just before World War I. He's the guy the Army taps to help them sort the four million men. And he reaches out to a lot of other psychologists, and, and, and they get involved in doing that. The war ends pretty quickly. So there is this core of psychologists led by Scott who now realize that they've developed even more expertise when it comes to assessing the aptitudes, that is the abilities of people, assessing the interests of people, and they realize that this, if you will, kind of technology that we've pioneered with the Army, this is something that we could sell in a consulting capacity to corporate America. So immediately after the war, they go into essentially independent consulting. Then they realize pretty quickly, in part because Scott is asked to return to his undergraduate alma mater, Northwestern University, to become the university's president, which suddenly makes him very interested in, hey, how can we bring some of this applied psychological expertise to higher education? That's the birth of the student personnel point of view. Just their phrase for bringing some of the insights of psychology as an academic field to the real world now to include higher education. So he, in a way, is the founding father. And some of his students and acolytes in the 20s begin to help institutions of higher education with certain basic issues, like which kinds of students should we admit? Today, we take it for granted. We look at SAT scores. Well, there was no such thing as an SAT in the 1920s, right? Well, wasn't it uh, high school grades? Well, actually, no, right? So it, it was these psychologists that kind of worked out what is the correlation between high school grades and college performance. Is there actually a strong correlation between the two? It, it turned out in the end, yes, partly, right? But they actually and then invented essentially uh, early forerunners of the SAT test, right, to look at intellectual ability. And they, they finally figured out that combination of looking at high school grades and intellectual ability was the best predictor of which students would, would do well. Then they realized that just identifying these students, not all of these students that should have done well in college actually did well. Why is that? They turned their attention to trying to figure out what it is. And it turns out that students were more than students. They were human beings. So while being college students, trying to pass all their classes, they were hitting speed bumps in life different sorts of problems, uh, problems of social awkwardness and peer relationships, problems with financing their college education, right? I don't have enough money to come back next year. Getting into trouble, discipline problems. So they realized there was kind of a whole suite of things that were tripping up students. And so they began to think about, is there a more systematic way that we could better support students that we admit that we to to college and that we know have the potential uh, 
to do well. So thanks to Walter Dill Scott and other psychologists who are interested in kind of working with these kinds of issues, there came to be a group primarily located in the land-grant universities of the Middle West, the Big Ten kind of schools, who were really actively working these issues in the interwar period. And eventually they began to fine-tune the tests that they were using, which were essentially tests of interests and abilities, developed, yeah, to help people pick the right jobs, but they realized this would help students pick the right majors that might lead to the right jobs in the end. And so this was kind of the first idea, or the core idea, to have a, a college testing or counseling service at the core of these student support services that were being provided. Eventually, in 1937, people who were working along these lines came together, the American Council on Education, the professional organization for all of America's colleges and universities, realized that there's enough here, and so they supported um, a conference to bring these people who were working these things together to come up with a statement of what was possible, and that was the 1937 student personnel point of view, which really first articulated this whole person development perspective. And it's, it's really not sophisticated. It's just to recognize that college students are full, complete, complex human beings, not just students who sit in classrooms and pass courses and eventually graduate because of that. Your father eventually got his PhD while he was working at LaSalle. So he's Dr. Tom McCarthy, just like you are. That's right. Right. Although I'm not named after him. I'm named after his father. Oh, okay. Yep. And eventually he becomes vice president of student affairs. That's right. So my father helped stand up the college counseling center at LaSalle in the early 50s. By the late 50s, he was appointed director of the college Counseling Center, and so ran the College Counseling Center for 10 years, I guess 1958, 59 to 1969, and then he was asked to become vice president for student affairs at that point. It's, and this all occurred about the same time, the social unrest of the 1970s, and so how did this impact his uh, principles about counseling? Uh, the different social movements, and how did LaSalle do, deal with the social movements? At the core of the development of the whole person idea that uh, counseling psychologists brought to American higher education after the war was this idea of the structured and supported development of college students into full adulthood. Uh, people who were involved in this effort were really enthusiastic about it. They really felt like they were making positive contributions to their students' lives. Uh, and so they were well down that path by the late 1960s and, 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 and certainly were eager to continue down that path. Uh, and if you think about it, on the student life side of the college experience, if you're living on a college campus, that's a structured environment where the institution has made a lot of decisions about the nature of that experience living on campus, so the experience outside the classroom. 
And that, that was the ballywick of the student uh, affairs professionals. And they, they felt really kind of good about the quality experience that they were creating there. But then we get to the late 1960s in the United States where a lot of things are happening. Outside the college campuses, first, the civil rights movement, big deal. Secondly, the war in Vietnam, and after 1965, increasingly opposition to the war in Vietnam, both civil rights and Vietnam resonated very strongly with many college students. And so a whole lot of things start to happen, and they coalesce around the idea that college students really are already adults and therefore should have the full set of adult freedoms as adults. This, of course, is related to Vietnam, the argument that if you can draft us at age 18 and send us to fight in Vietnam, aren't we adults? This is going to lead to um, the lowering of the voting age, for example, from 21 to 18, and the recognition in both federal and state law in most places that people are legally adults at age 18. But it turns out that this whole person development paradigm is going to come in conflict to a great degree with a rather sudden change in perception on the part of many college students that, hey, I'm already an adult, right? Don't structure my environment, right? Don't, don't put any boundaries around what I can do here on campus. I'm an adult. Okay, And so that posed a often, not in every case by any stretch of the imagination, but in some cases kind of a direct challenge to the whole person development, student affairs paradigm, which was that college students are still developing towards adulthood as opposed to, I am an adult, treat me like an adult, right? Let me do what I want to do. And you write about your father adjusting to this change. And uh, in one place, you talk about how he decided he needed to learn more about sexuality so he could be more effective with the student body. One of the things that LaSalle decided to do, literally at the point that he was appointed vice president, was to admit women like um, many Indeed, to the end of the 1960s, most Catholic colleges and university were single-sex institutions. There were reasons having to do with um, pre-Vatican II Catholic theology for that. Uh, but in a rush uh, in 68, 69, 1970, many, many, many single-sex institutions in the United States, including Catholic institutions, decided to go co-educational. So... Since admitting women to LaSalle College very much involved student life and the support of students, now women students in, in addition to uh, male students, one of the first responsibilities my father had was getting the college ready for women to come to the school. Right, and so there are a lot of practical things involved in that, uh, finding dormitories for them, retrofitting the dormitories so women's students could live there. One of the things that it became clear that they had not expected when they admitted women students, but you know, in hindsight, they might have 
given more attention to, because this, of course, is where the Catholic Church traditionally had been coming from in terms of segregating male and female students, is, well, you bring students together and they're living together on campus, well, some of those male and female students are going to end up even closer together. And for LaSalle, 80% of their students were Roman Catholic, uh, coming directly to LaSalle from their segregated, sex-segregated high schools in the Philadelphia area. Uh, they came without uh, a lot of awareness of sex, sexuality, contraception. And it soon became evident that students had a lot of questions, had a lot of needs, and yes, were beginning to get into difficulties. Uh, one of the shocks with the admission of uh, women to LaSalle was that 5% of the women who were admitted and lived on campus ended up getting pregnant in their first year. So it, it was clear that in terms of the support side of student life, that my father's area needed to kind of get more involved here. And here's a good example of the clash between the student freedom paradigm and the student development paradigm. Clearly, there needed to be a little bit more structure and support to help those college students make their transition from their high school backgrounds into having greater freedoms as college students on, on the way to ultimate adulthood. My, my father thought that as a psychologist, in fact, people, a person who had given lectures and talks and things on human sexuality in the past, he thought that he kind of knew enough already. But once he found himself, he and his colleagues in the middle of the kind of these issues related to sexuality, he realized, I, I don't really know enough about this. Um, and the truth, there really wasn't uh, a lot of expertise out there available to turn to. Um, Kinsey had published his famous uh, publications on American sexuality in the late 40s and early 50s. But essentially, there had been no scholarly follow-up. No, nobody followed Kinsey down that road in terms of research into sexuality. So there wasn't a large research literature in 1970 yet. But the so-called sexual revolution of the late 1970s, and, and that's in effect what my father was encountering with these uh, college students in the late 60s and 70s, made lots of people aware that, wow, there's really a lot more to learn about human sexuality. So my father then went out, uh, went to uh, workshops run by Masters and Johnson and, and people like that to get a little bit smarter. He decided, wow, our students really need a course, a college course on human sexuality. So he stood up one of the first courses on human sexuality at a Catholic college and then taught that for years uh, and made a point to talk in detail about all of the available contraceptive options out there. While also saying here is the Catholic Church's official take on contraception, right? But in addition, here's the array of all your options. Here's how they work. Here, here is their degree of effectiveness. And he, he literally bought these things at the drugstore and brought them in, passed them around to his students. You have a right to know this was his idea, right? 
what your conscience tells you you should do, right? Okay, that's another matter, and that, that's up to you. But you have a right to know the information. So that, that was the upshot of that. Along with uh, birth control information and changes brought about by civil rights and feminism, there was also a gay student group at LaSalle. And if I remember right, you said that it was the only such organization in Philadelphia among uh, Catholic colleges. Is that correct? Yes, that's that's correct. Um, My father and his colleagues in the counseling center, uh, of course, were aware from doing counseling with individual students that there always had been some students at LaSalle who were gay or were trying to figure out their sexual identity. That was kind of, that fact was familiar. But of course, none of these students were, as we would say today, out about being gay. None of these students were openly and publicly gay as part of the LaSalle community. And what happened in the early 1970s, in 1971, was all of a sudden, and this was the perception at the time, a group of LaSalle students publicly announced to the community, we're gay. And we're part of the LaSalle community. And we want to be recognized and respected by the community as the gay people that we are. Oh, and in addition, we would like the college to bestow upon us official recognition as a student group, which came with certain privileges, including, I think, if I recall correctly, some funding from the college. All of a sudden, that was an issue that the institution had to confront. And it really wasn't all of a sudden, whoa, why is this happening? Why is it happening to us now? They talked to their colleagues at other institutions in the Philadelphia area, especially the other Catholic colleges, and their response was, nope, we don't, we don't have any group like this. So it, it felt to my father and the president at the time to kind of figure out, uh, okay, how should we respond to this group? And this proved to be very... Uh, Very interesting and very challenging. Um, Because the students were publicly out, that meant that um, heterosexual students, of course, were aware of the group. And because they were publicly out, the larger Philadelphia Catholic community pretty quickly became aware that there was an active gay group at LaSalle College. And what that meant to many heterosexual students and maybe more importantly, heterosexual alumni of LaSalle College, that now homosexuality and LaSalle College were being associated in people's minds, right, to the detriment of their own identification with the college. So there was not a positive reception among college students at large, or at least there was a significant degree of, wow, we're really not happy about this happening. There was a degree of tolerance, right? The community actually was pretty good in kind of maintaining a basic level of civility, but there was a great deal of discomfort 
the alumni in particular made clear pretty quickly that we expect you, the college administrators, to quash this student group quickly, right? So that this kind of embarrassment goes away. So my dad and the college president had to decide how to respond. The students are asking for official recognition. And so their view on that was, we are a Catholic institution and a Catholic theology, the Catholic Church does not recognize a category called homosexuality. It recognizes that there are homosexual acts, and it says those individual acts are sinful, and it certainly doesn't condone those either, right? But from their standpoint, they couldn't give official recognition to the student group. On the other hand, they looked at the students and said, well, they're part of our community, right? They should have the right to freely associate with one another. If they want to be a group, if they want to meet together, they should be able to do that. That should be a community, and indeed a kind of civil right that they have as Americans and as part of our college community. So they decide, no, we're not going to quash this group. We will allow them to meet in college facilities, so long as they're not really actively proselytizing for homosexuality it, it, towards the other students, or in particular, outside the college to the larger community, their right to be themselves and to meet together, we will try and protect that. And of course, that path didn't please anybody. But that was a good example of the student freedom paradigm. In this case, and the students I interviewed, the gay students said, yeah, our model was the civil rights movement, right? Uh, and they told me, we really weren't paying attention to things like Stonewall, which took place a year or two before, and of course now is seen as the symbolic event giving birth to the gay liberation movement, encouraging large numbers of gay Americans to come out. They were not tracking what was really going on. It was purely a local thing. They were aware of the civil rights movement. And they said they just felt comfortable at LaSalle. It was a kind of community where they felt like, yeah, I feel like I can be my authentic self here. And they found others who felt the same way and just said, yeah, let's just be ourselves and, and push this a little bit. Well, for my final question, it's going to be a two-parter, and it refers back to my first one. So you were thinking about your father historically as you went through this process of writing this book, working with him. So in the end, what do you see as the legacy, what your father's legacy was, and does he see his legacy different than what you see it as? No, I see it very much the same way that he does. He would say his legacy is that he was very fortunate in his life, super fortunate, to have had the opportunity to help so many people, primarily college students, to better lives in the exact same way that other people had stepped up when he was younger to help him to a better life. So this sense of having the opportunity to turn around and pay back in the way that he had benefited from the help that he had, I think that was far and away the thing that gave him the most professional satisfaction. And I came away 
having learned more about this generation of counseling psychologists, very impressed by that very same contribution that they brought to uh, American higher education. I think it's an overlooked benefit that many of us who went to college in the years after 1945 simply did not appreciate in our college experiences because we took so many of those things that we found at, at colleges and universities for granted, right? Without asking the question that we would ask as historians, that is, where did they come from? When and why? Uh, and the story that I really encountered in doing this research through my father's life was the answers to those questions. I thought there were all these connections to larger American history, but the connection that I really found while doing this book and doing this research was that there was this important movement by psychologists that brought real benefits to American higher education that, that we just don't sufficiently appreciate. But the folks who actually lived that as their careers, I think, derived, like my father did, immense professional and personal satisfaction from having had the opportunity to do that with their lives. Well, thanks, Tom. It was very informative, and uh, I learned so much by reading your book. Thank oh, you. Oh, you're very welcome. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.